Hey fellow tennis nerds, I hope all is well. I'm here with a guy you probably know already, Nikola Aracic. I hope I pronounced that right, Nikola. Uh, one of YouTube's favorite coaches, channel of 200,000 something subscribers, high level college player, ex high level college player that is. And uh, the YouTube channel is Intuitive Tennis. I've been watching loads of his videos, they're great. And I, I agree with most of the things he says, why, which is why I want to talk to him today. And we went into some other stuff as well. So welcome to the podcast, Nikola. Thank you for having me on. I've been a fan of yours for a while too. You cool. Have, it's always nice to be you, mutual you fans. You have the information <laughs> that nobody else has. I'm trying. I'm trying to um, to get into it. I mean, if you, you, it gets very detailed like, and very nerdy, but it's it's sometimes fun. You it's know? amazing. Like if you want to find out what gear, what rackets, what strings of professional players are using, there's very little information on it. You know, online, and it might be outdated. So like. You are the spot to go to to find out, like you know, what gear the pros are using. So, I'm a big fan. Yeah, I'm trying. I have my spies out there. It's uh, it's it's what it is, you know. But it's quite funny, you know, because sometimes, like, even if I go to tournaments, uh, they sometimes the pros come up and like, hey, should you really think I should change strings? You know, <laughs> like, is that, relax, is you that know? right? Like the, the pros ask you yeah, for yeah. advice. Yeah, sometimes it's happened. Yeah, it's pretty funny. Oh wow, um, that's amazing. Yeah, it's a, it's it's humbling. You don't you know, but it, it's fun. It's fun. I, I mean, I love tennis. It's it's a passion we both share, right? Of so, um, I wanted to, like you started YouTube maybe five years ago. Am I right? Two thousand eighteen. It was like June. Yeah, it was, I think five. May two thousand eighteen. Yeah. Pretty much similar. I mean, I think I started about that time, and I was like, "What is this? I'll just try, give it a, a right. shot." But you've had an insane growth, and you're doing really well, and you also have a very varied level of videos like you coach players of different caliber but you also do some gear reviews and you also uh, really go into the technique but also with very common sense technique which i think a lot of players get i see them you know on all levels gets you know and myself get confused with going too deep into certain things and then get lost you know sure. so you're trying to be uh wh why did you choose the name intuitive tennis well i created the, the intuitive tennis methodology prior to starting the YouTube channel. And I have d done a lot of research on tennis technique. I've coached a little bit differently prior to doing all this research. I wasn't too happy with some of my um, coaching methods. It didn't make a lot of sense to me. You know, some things that I was, that I was teaching were some of the very common things that I taught. And then I would observe slow motion footage and I would see that actually the pros are not doing what I'm teaching. So it was all really confusing, which led me to do a tremendous amount of research and actually change my coaching style. And I had great success with it. At that time, this is like 2012 to 2018, I was teaching a lot of high-level juniors. And I began to teaching my... I began to changing my coaching style with great success. My juniors started to play better. The parents were so impressed with the development that they convinced me to put this information out into the public. And the whole thing kind of coincided with the fact that my dad was a coach who I was very influenced by. He was a high-level coach in Croatia and split Croatia. And he actually coached very similar to how I coach now. And um, I very much learned from him early on. But then I went to the United States, of course, and I started teaching and I developed a little bit more of a technical analytical style. 
And interestingly, I kind of went back to his ways later on in my coaching career. So in 2017, he got diagnosed with uh, stage four lung cancer. And I had this thought that like, he was going to take all that information with him to the grave, you know, like he had so many great things that he'd done with the game of tennis and he never put anything out there public. He never wrote a book. He never made any videos or anything like that. So that kind of spurred me to go ahead and write the book called intuitive tennis, which I started and I got about 60 pages in and, um, it wasn't going well. Like the writing process was very tough for me. So I thought, you know what, let me, uh, put this information out there in video format. And that's when I decided to start the YouTube channel. Yeah, it's nice that you're kind of honoring your, your father, right, as well. Like, I mean, it's like that you are full circle his teachings and you kind of bring them on. Because I guess like you also, you, I mean, obviously you are, you must have similar traits, right? And sometimes maybe life brings you full circle. You get into a, the woods of like technical coaching and then you figure out maybe what he figured out in his life over the years. The maybe. difference was, and I made a video about this when he, he ended up passing away um, in 2021, where the interesting thing was that he taught the way I taught without really explaining it. And I wanted to really understand why tennis was intuitive, which led me to do the tremendous amount of research. So I think the difference between me and him was that I wanted to understand why certain things of the tennis game are intuitive and why other things are not, you know? So there'll be the difference, but yeah, our coaching style styles ended up being very similar and I was very influenced by his, by his teaching methods for sure. Yeah, but it's also kind of a beautiful story. I mean, I'm sorry to hear about his passing. Mm -hmm. I'm the same, I lost my father more, a long time ago now, but it's still like, you know, it's a, it's a connection you have, right? So, and also you, you connected over the, the beautiful sport of tennis and you could see eye to eye in the, in the coaching. So what would you say is, is if you, for example, get a, a player, a student, any level really, how do you approach it differently today compared to how you did before? So... Before it was very much an approach where like one size fits all, you know, a certain technique that I thought was the best and applied that to all players. That's yeah. what I was doing before. And the research that I've done helped me understand that there's differences between fundamentals and style, meaning that there are certain fundamental things that all high level players do. And then there's stylistic differences. So what I began doing was only teach the fundamentals and allow the players to develop their style, their own style. And I think that is very important because I think tennis can be off-putting for people. I mean, it's so difficult. We, we mentioned that before we started, like the, the growth of pickleball can, uh, you know, it can annoy you. It can, people love pickleball, some people hate it, but it's so easy. So you start playing it like straight away. Yeah. While tennis, I love it because it's so difficult. Yeah. But but it can also be off-putting. But if you manage to kind of d dilute the whole technical stuff into kind of smaller parts and a bit easier digestible pieces, it's it's much easier for players yeah. well, to to get into. If, it. You know, I teach a lot of beginners, and um, I love teaching beginners because I find it's the biggest challenge in coaching. 
not to say by any means that coaching advanced players or professional players is easy. It's not, but it's a different type of coaching. It's, of course, less technical because those players are very much developed. And if they have technical deficiencies, they're, they're minor. But when you have a beginner, especially if that beginner is like not very gifted for the game of tennis, it's a real challenge to um, have them play the actual game and have the ability to rally and play with a friend. And this is what, for example, my dad was really great at. He developed all these drills where players would learn to feel for the ball right off the get-go, you know? He would make them understand that hitting the tennis ball is very similar to hitting the tennis ball with their hands. Because when beginner players step on the court, you know, unfortunately, tennis is a counterintuitive game for them because they will intuitively... Um, do things wrong on the court. For example, they will approach every ball with the strings in order to make contact with the ball, which is very much wrong technique, whether you're talking about the forehand, backhand, or the serve. So, for example, I'll just give you one small example. I don't want to go too much in depth, but my dad would have the players start from the contact with their hand, not even worry about the backswing, just so they can learn and conceptualize the idea of touching the ball and making contact with it and, and that method has proved to be so effective because I have had many, many beginners who are able to rally on their first day of playing tennis because they learned that from feel for the ball, you know, right from the get-go. Yeah, that, that, I think that's a great way of approaching it. It sounds, I mean, because I'm, I'm trying to coach my mother because she's quite, quite new to yeah. tennis. My father is playing almost, you know, four or five times a week, so he, he, he loves playing, you know, on his level. And... Uh, and I do notice, like, if you don't have some tricks, and you, I notice also being not not being a coach that it's like you want to tell too much, or you want to give them too much information, sure. and 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 you overwhelm them. So you're like, oh, but if you serve, you should be like this, so you should do like this, and then then it's like it they can't digest it. It's too much, you know. It's 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 not the right approach. One hundred percent, yeah. In tennis, if you have more than one idea in your head, if you want to execute several ideas simultaneously, it's impossible. You have to work on one technical element at a time. It's just it's just impossible. It's too complex of, of a movement. It's too quick of a movement to be able to do multiple things at once. So in my experience, the, the, uh, the instructions have to be very simple and they have to be done one at a time. Yeah, I think that is very true. Um, so tell us a little bit about, about the story on YouTube. I mean, like YouTube is an interesting yeah. beast, I, I find. You know, it's like you, you look at the algorithm, you... I, I'm not good at that, but um, you can do it in a different ways. People can do reaction videos. They can take pirate, like take other people's content and do something with it. They can um, do vlogs, or you know, there's everything on YouTube, and it's it's growing incredibly. How has your approach? How has it like been through the years of working with kind of being always on camera? Uh -huh. Do you do your own editing, or do you have people editing for you, or stuff like that? Um, I do most of the editing myself. I have. Um had some people help me with certain aspects of it, but I pretty much do everything myself. I'm a little bit of a control freak that way. I have tried to use editors and they never do it quite the way I like it because see the type of videos that I make, some of the type of videos that I make, they're very difficult to make for someone else. For example, if I tape a one hour, a one and a half hour coaching session with someone, and I want to turn that into a 10-minute video, it's very tricky to do. It's very tricky to do, and it's almost like I, I have to do that myself, you know, in order to do it correctly. So it's a little bit challenging. Yeah, I'm, I'm the same. I do everything as well myself yeah. for that reason. Yes. 
I don't know. YouTube is uh, it's so difficult to figure out like what's going to be successful and what is not. I think that if people knew how to be successful on YouTube, everybody would be successful on YouTube. It's very much a mystery. So it's very confusing. Like, it's, I mean, I've been doing it now for a while where I see things in our niche that don't make sense. Like generally the things that will give you a lot of success don't necessarily give you a lot of success in tennis, you know? So a great thumbnail by no means is a guarantee that a video is going to do well. There are examples of tennis videos on YouTube that have millions of views that don't even have a thumbnail. So how do you explain that? You know, then there's an idea where shorter videos are going to do better because people get bored quickly. But then the confusing thing is that there are some videos, tennis videos on YouTube that are 20 plus minutes, 30 plus minutes that have millions of views. And then, so there's really, it's really hard to figure out what works. So what I've done is I tried to make like every video that I make, I try to do it the best I can pretty much. And I try really hard to, to not be repetitive because that's one danger of, of tennis instruction in a way where you, it's, there's, it's not an infinite subject when it comes to tennis technique. Eventually there's going to be things that you already covered that you're covering again. And I try to avoid that. Like, for example, I have a video on, um, forehand timing that did well had like, I think 500,000 or 600,000 views. So I really can't touch that subject ever again, because, you know, if I make another forehand timing video, I'll be competing with myself. For example, I have a beginner um, tennis lesson video that has, I think, two or three million views. So for me to make another beginner lesson, uh, you know, it's it's kind of tricky that way. So also the fact that there are so many YouTube channels now that teach tennis, the field was saturated when you and I got into it in 2018, but now it's like even more. I think some of that yeah. has to do with the pandemic where... People had nothing to do. There was no tennis going on. So you had a lot of the professional players that started making content. I mean, Miss Williams has a YouTube channel where she teaches you how to serve. And they also started making courses. So now it's a field that's even more saturated than ever before. But also you have like famous people in the tennis scene that are making content. Where before it was more like just, you know, regular guys like you and me. You know, who people didn't yep. know, who people got to know through YouTube. And now it's like, it's, it's just a very tough field. So the YouTube landscape has changed and there's different types of content that, that, that is working now. For example, Tennis Brothers, I don't know if you know him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Felix. So his content is really working, the blog style. And so there's some new younger guys that are doing really well, like um, the Racketflex guys who I know personally. And my tennis yeah, 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 I've seen those yeah, stuff. My, yeah, my they, tennis, they put a lot of work. Yeah, my tennis HQ. These are like younger guys who edit in a way where it appeals maybe to more of a younger audience. You know, they edit in a way where I can't edit. That's just like I guess you have to be you have to be young to be able to edit like that. And um, so that's like that's like something on YouTube that's doing really well now. It's like the younger coaches. So the scene is uh, it's a tough scene. It's 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 changing a little bit, and it's extremely competitive, and it's, it's it's tough. So what I try to do is 
I tried to keep things um, fresh. I tried to be innovative and I tried to present like new, fresh content and not go over some of the same old stuff that's been gone over millions of times before on YouTube. No, I think you do a really great job and I think the numbers speak speak volumes and I think you have a pretty decent fan base as well because yeah. you also find ways to approaching topics in a, you know, I, you know, I've been watching a lot of videos from everyone partly because I'm interested in tennis, but also because I'm interested in creating content, like how that works and, and you get tired just watching it. Like, like you say, the competition is, it's even in the racket reviewing space, which I've been just came out of like coincidence. It's just, there's so many people who are reviewing rackets. Right. Like I, I can't even like, you know, count them. So but are we talking about uh, like YouTube, but if we want to talk about like Instagram, that's where the real situation is because it appears that every tennis coach has their own like Instagram page where they post drills and stuff. So there's literally tens of thousands of, of content creators now, you know, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's like you have to choose your, your niche and your way of doing it and then just believe in that like, and keep, keep going because I think it's tough if you try to be everyone or try to please everyone or do things in different ways. Like you say with the editing, I'm, I'm not like a young guy who knows everything about like editing software. I'm learning. You know, I, I've learned quite a bit. Like I worked in radio when I was 20, so I know how to edit like sound and stuff like that. But it, all these like cool effects, transitions and stuff, I don't use. Right. <laughs> I just keep it like pretty basic. Of course, you know? yeah, me too. I try to keep it as basic as I can. Sure. Yeah. Because I think it's it's like the way I, I'm taught like from journalism school is that it's actually like trying to omit the needless stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have if you have a, a long video, you're like blah, 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 endless talking, which no, just fluff. Mm -hmm. I don't like it. Even if people watch it, I don't like it, you know? So I try to keep it like pretty short and to the point being at least improving over the years. But it's, it's yeah, it's uh, the competition is, is, is out there for sure. You know, it's it's interesting. Uh, but yeah, you're doing well. And also, I, I you know, I, I watch a lot of stuff and I, I you know, I, I know a lot of people who like yours, probably the best in the coaching right. sphere. So that, that's great. Right. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. You also do some reviews, like you had the, the Roger Pro clay court sure. shoe, for example. Yeah. What did you think about that one? I'm just curious. I haven't tried that shoe. The um, the on running. Mm -hmm. I think as far as style, I think it's a ten out of ten. I think it's maybe one of the coolest looking shoes I've ever had. It looks really nice. It's super high quality. Um, I actually have other shoes from from on that are not tennis, so I really like that company a lot. But as far as performance, I give it a, I give it a six and a half out of ten simply because I don't think it's a shoe that fits my foot. I have more of a narrow foot, and that shoe appears to be more for people with a wide foot because my foot was moving around the shoe a lot. So if I would like, for example, make a hard stop, whether it was laterally or forward, I felt like my my foot was moving and kind of protruding through the soft materials on top of the shoe. So for me personally, performance-wise, it wasn't as good as like the Nike Zoom Vapor Pro or the Nike Zoom Vapor 9.5. But it's still a shoe that I can see myself like, you know, walking around in or, or using for teaching, for sure. It looks really cool. Yeah. Yeah, it looks great. I mean, uh, same, same with the Vapor. I'm, 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 I'm a Vapor fan from the looks, especially. Yeah. But then with my foot on the tennis court, sometimes I get like some stiffness that I don't get with some other brands. So I don't know why. But but for you, is that one of the best shoes ever? Wait, the, the Nike you get fight? stiffness from the Nike? Yeah. Weirdly. I don't know why. I mean, my physio told me that for my type of foot, which is slightly pronated, like it's it's um, the Nike shoes can be a bit of an issue. But for like a flat foot or whatever, it's fine. You know, so. Yeah. yeah it's just so it, it, the shoes are so like 
individual, right? Everybody's going to like yeah, a different yeah, yeah. shoe. Um, for me personally, a little bit, a little bit of it is brand loyalty. Like I really like Nike. I was always a Nike fan. I, I mean, I was a McEnroe fan. I was a Agassi fan, a Sampras fan. I always kind of like wearing Nike stuff. And then of course, I'm a huge, um, Michael Jordan fan. It was like my favorite basketball player of all time. And I was a Federer fan as well. So a little bit of that is brand loyalty, but I also, I have tried other shoes, of course, and it just suits me well. Maybe it's like I've gotten used to those shoes, especially the Zoom Vapor 9.0 and the Zoom Vapor 9.5. Like that's a shoe that just perfectly fits me. I don't think I've gotten a blister one single time. Even if the shoes are brand new, I can, I can put them on and play like, Two, three sets no problem so that's a shoe that just fits my foot perfectly and um yeah when i try a different shoe it's just not the same you know yeah but then you're happy that they brought it back finally <laughs> i hope they continue to uh make it available and maybe bring out some different colors because i didn't really like the color they came out with it was like a green greenish blue it was kind of like an ugly color so i hope they continue to sell it and and bring back some of the other colors you know yeah, we talked about that, me and my friend. We actually, we try, I tried the shoe. I really, I mean, I really liked the 9.5 as well. It was one of my favorite shoes. Uh, and then, but the colorway, I mean, they had some really classy ones back. Then I'm also a Fed fan, right? So it's like, you know, you saw him just glide over, you know, the court with those shoes. Just looked amazing. And then, but the colorways could, yeah, a few more options would be good, I would say. No, for sure. For sure. And they're doing some weird things with Nike where they're, I think they know they made a mistake when they changed to the Zoom Vapor Pro because they discontinued yeah. that model pretty fast. It was only out there for a couple of years, I think. And now they came out with a new Zoom Vapor Pro and a Zoom Vapor 11. And those are just completely different shoes. Like, not that they're bad shoes. I've tried them. But it's just got, it's got nothing to do with the Zoom Vapor 9.5. You know? No. No, no, no. It, it, even if you look at the shoes, I, I feel like they took quite a big departure from the... Big from the mold of the shoe. Big, yeah. big departure. And I have heard, to be fair, I have heard some people that like the new ones better than the old ones, you know? So that's why I say, like, shoes are so individual. Also, if you want to relate it to technique and playing styles, I know junior players who I've trained who can go through a pair of Zoom Vapor 9.5s in, like, a week or two. Like, you know players that drag their foot on certain strokes, yeah. Oh no, when they slide, they drag the other foot on the ground, like laterally. Like a clay move. Right? Yeah, they yeah. put the side of the shoe on the ground as they're sliding to give them more balance. I don't do that personally. But when you do that, the materials on the Zoom Vapor 9.5 are so soft, you're going to get a hole in your shoe in like a couple of weeks. So yeah. depending on your, on your movement and playing style, those shoes can wear out pretty fast. Where maybe some other ones, like some of the newer ones, they have more like plasticky materials on top and they might be more durable. I don't know. Yeah. No, I heard from uh, from some guys, I think it was Nike, Nike that Alcaraz, he brought like, he, I think he uses the Vapor 1 still. He tried the new one, then he went back to the, uh, to the Vapor Pro 1 and he used 11 pairs of shoes in the US Open, right? That's so unbelievable. Like, yeah. <laughs> so it broke like the 10 pairs of shoes. Maybe you know? Nike is thinking like, you know, the game is evolving into this hyper athletic game where everybody is sliding on hard court. But if I get that, that's only at the top. Like, I don't know anyone at the rec level who knows how to slide on hard court. Maybe one out of a hundred knows, you know? 
So, so if they want to make the shoes more durable on top so people can slide, that doesn't really apply to us, you know, the regular people. No. So no. Bring back the, no, it puts... Bring back the nine and a half. That's for us. <laughs> yeah, I think they need to have a bit of a clear distinction who the shoe is for. Sometimes with their shoe manufacturers, I yeah. think it's just like everything about this shoe is the best everything about this string is the best everything about this racket is the best it's like who is this for because we're all different right so if if this is like a shoe for Daniil Medvedev who moves crazily around like like an octopus you know just like sliding and and whatever hard court or or clay court Uh, or you have a rec player maybe he's overweight maybe whatever you know he's not going to even use the shoe in in like 30% of the same way right so it's like they they have to change the the how they market the shoe and say this is for you club player three five four or whatever you know well, that's the type good can shoe. i kind of elaborate on what you just said like yeah i would love that have, yeah this is a, this place where you elaborate. This doesn't have anything to do with shoes but what you said was just equipment in general where they're they're constantly like improving the materials and they they make everything better and better and better and it's always the stuff that the pros are using so Recreational players see that and they want to play with the same equipment that the pros are using. But the observation that I have made with former like elite level players, for example, there was one time where I played an exhibition with Francesca Schiavoni and this is well after she won the French Open. It was over towards the end of her career. And I picked up a racket and I noticed that she played with a 300 gram uh, arrow, pure arrow. Yeah. And I ask her, you always play with this? And she goes, no, I used to play with the, with the tour version and then I went down because I'm older now. And I've seen this with other pro players where they, as they get older, they kind of downgrade their equipment a little bit. They go lighter. They go maybe more powerful as far as the racket is yeah. concerned. And why is that? Because their athleticism declines and they need a little bit more help from the equipment. But unfortunately, you know, I've seen so many rec players that want to play exactly with the same thing that, you know, Federer and Nadal were using in their prime. And it's just it's just yeah. ludicrous because, you know, the regular person is not even near the athletic level of those of those players. And even the players themselves, when their, you know, athletic level declines, they switch their equipment too, and get, yeah. more, get I mean, more comfortable strings, more comfortable rackets and so on. Yeah, no, and it makes all the sense in the world because if you can get help from the equipment, you should get help from the equipment. Exactly. But I, I deal with this on a daily basis. Like people, they release a federal autograph or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's a super heavy racket, very stiff. It's nice. Like it hits the ball like nice if you hit flat and hard. And, and you know, I've seen people who are very high levels, like 55-year-olds who can play with this. But it's very rare that you can play with it. But then everybody thinks that this is the best racket. They think it's like a stereo. You're like This has the best sound. No, no, no. This is for one player, and then this is this is different. People see it as a TV or an iPhone, right? They buy the Pro model because it's the best. But the Pro is not the best for you, right? That, that's that's the thing that is completely wrong information. Well, in this is I. I have made racket videos on on rackets, and these are some of the most videos with the most engagement, and this is where I receive the most receive the most backlash. Because I think what happens with some players who take my advice, they take that advice personally, has to say that I'm insulting them, that they're not good enough to play with a high caliber racket, you know? They're in their mind. They no, think no, that yeah, they deserve, yeah. based on their level, to play with a, with a great racket. And, you know, I do this. Uh, I give advice to someone who has, you know, taught tennis 30 years. And 
the two things that I look for in my students when they choose strings or rackets is number one, I want them to be pain-free, but not only pain-free, I want them to play better with the equipment. See, that's what happens often at the, at the rec level where players completely ignore the fact that the racket that they're choosing is making them play worse. And they only play with the racket, you know, as maybe a status symbol or just because their favorite player plays with it. And they completely ignore that you need to find a racket that's going to maximize your tennis. And everybody's going to be a little bit different and it's very complex. And you're right, I have seen some recreational level players that play perfectly fine with the RF 97 or super, super heavy rackets. That's all true. And it might work for some players. And I always say, if it's working for you, by all means, continue using what's working for you. But one of the most important things is that you choose a racket where let's say you have four demos and you're hitting with the demos. And one of them is going to be like something special where the ball just kind of feels right off the racket. When you, when you hit it, and that should be like a signal, okay, this is it, you know, I'm hitting a little bit better with this racket, this is the one. Independent of what brand it is, independent of the racket specs, you know, who's playing with it, just go by like, is it pain-free? And is this maximizing my, 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 my tennis? That's what I tell everybody. 100% agree. I, I try to tell everyone as well, because I get a lot of like I do consultations, people can't find the racket, you know, and everything. And it's I test everything that comes out from also like very light 280 gram rackets, 270 gram racket to the top 340 or even new Rafa now, which is like 370 swing weight, insane racket. Wow. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. So it's his spec, you know. I, I, I really had to, to look twice before I, I saw, I could understand that they actually released the Rafa specification, right. you know. So it's like... You know, people will buy it and they might just put it on the wall or they might hit for 30 minutes, but it's not something you bring to a club-level match. I mean, I, I gave it to, to uh, you know, ITF pros who play 20-year-old guys. They play, you know, futures. They play high-level tennis. Yeah. They train with, with high-pro-level pros. They're like, nah, I can't believe it. Right. <laughs> they can't use that. <laughs> I mean, they use pretty light rackets. Right? I just told you the story. Francesca Schiavoni, Grand Slam champion, French Open champion, played towards the end of her career with a 300-gram racket. You know, so that that should be yeah. all people need to know. You know, like that should be the sign for them. But like I said, it's super complex because we talked about shoes being individual. Rackets are individual too. If there weren't, there were there wouldn't be so many racket models available, right? And everybody likes no, something no, different. No. But I'll just give you one more example of the type of things that I experience on the courts with students. So this is kind of funny. I have one student that tried to play with the Yonex V-Core 98. I don't know exactly what, what, which one out of that line. And he is a huge Stan Wawrinka fan, right? And he tried and tried and tried, and it just wasn't playing that well. For whatever reason, he wasn't playing that well with the racket. Then he took a Wilson Blade, and you can just tell. For whatever the reason is, he started playing so much better. He started putting more spin on the ball. He was hitting with more power. It just looked more continuous, more flowing, his strokes. I can see, I, t I told him, look, I feel like you're playing better with this rack. Why the, what's the reason? I'm not quite sure, but I can tell you for sure. This rack suits you better. And I have another student who is the exact opposite. You know, who had tried to play with the blade and something just wasn't clicking with that racket. And then he went to a 
to a Yannick's V core and started playing better. So yeah, two completely opposite cases. And that's why I say that, you know, rackets are super individual. It's a super individual thing. Yep, I agree. And that, that's, the, that's the thing. You have to realize it depends on stroke mechanic, physicality. You know, are you, um, do you have like training technique from when you were four right. and then you quit for 30 years? You know, stuff like this. As but well. One more thing that it depends on highly, in my opinion, is muscle memory and your own feel, feel of the racket in your hand that you've gotten accustomed to. And um, I can tell you a personal story. When I was younger, um, when I played in, in Germany, and the club system, I, I used weird rackets. Like everybody was always like, well, you know, why are you playing with that racket? I used a Hyper Hammer 7.2. And then I switched to a Hyper Hammer 5.2, you know, the Justine and on racket. Yeah. And then when I came to college, everybody, especially my coach, Mel Purcell, the former um, Wimbledon quarterfinalist, he was a great player. He wanted me to play with a head prestige so bad because he thought a head prestige was somebody like of my playing style, I guess, uh, you know, kind of like a big server would like play the best with a head prestige. And also a lot of people from Europe in general play with a head prestige, especially back in those days. And especially players from uh, Croatia, love the head prestige whatever the reasons is maybe vanishevic chilich yeah, yeah whatever yeah. <laughs> so people just had this imprinted in their mind that i should be playing with head prestige and i've tried so many times and i just couldn't play with that thing i just couldn't i couldn't get the same amount of power i didn't have the same amount of feel and i just think that you know you you get your ten thousand hours in with certain equipment and your hand gets accustomed to the racket you get accustomed to the feeling and it just becomes very uncomfortable to to switch you know yeah and that's the thing with the pros like if they you see pros all the time like i know you know we had Corentin Mota, he tried technifiber we had bublik i also tried like yonex then technifiber and to head and then to technifiber uh, and then like they go have a tantrum they break all the rackets that happened with both cases they break like four rackets on the yeah. court because they don't trust the racket. It's not like they hate that specific racket. It's like they don't feel at home, right? They feel like this is the problem why I start playing. I can't hit my serve. And for them, it's like a, it's a level, it's a one millimeter here, two centimeters there. It's like that feeling on the impact. You can't just give a pro like a regular racket. And they, they have something that they have built their whole like tennis playing style with, right? right? Uh, for amateurs, it's rarely the same case. You can be a little bit, hey, okay, I can take a bubble out. Then I can take a head. It's fine. It's generally fine. I, you know, we don't have to be too crazy about it. Um, I obviously think, like, the more help you get, the better. Because sometimes it's also important for, like, a guy like you. You're a coach. So you can tell your student. I think Shamir is the guy you, you meant, right? The Vcore Pro guy. No, no. Actually, Shamir. No, the, the examples that I showed you uh, of players, is, this is not, these are not students that are featured on YouTube. Oh, yeah, okay, okay, but Shamir right. plays with, uh, you know, it's, I think it's a discontinued Yonex. I don't know the name. It's like the old Wawrinka, maybe. Yeah, yeah the v, v Core Pro. It's it's from a few years maybe. back. Yeah, yeah. I, I can yeah, see he that. Plays yeah. with old record. Yeah, because that one is is uh, if you're a Wawrinka fan, everybody wants to have that. It's not exactly what Wawrinka uses. I mean, we have Wawrinka's that's, racket at the office, right? But that's it, where, it's it's. That's where tennis nerd comes in, you know. With yeah, all the yeah, exactly, and. 
and I think it's better to play with the model that Yonix says that Vavrinka uses than to play with the actual Vavrinka racket because I've I hit that racket and that's that's a tank of a racket like that you don't swing unless you're Stan Vavrinka right. you know it's no 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 joke. But you right? bring up a super important thing you know with the guys breaking their rackets and blaming the rackets. See, it's very natural for a tennis player to start blaming the equipment, you know, when when things yeah. start going wrong and they they. Um, ignore other factors why um, they made a mistake or they're playing poorly. And you, I'm sure you know, I know personally players who can play with anything. These are like high-level players, professional-level players who can pick up a frying pan and play. And they don't care what strings are on the racket. They don't care what racket they play with. So in theory, and I've made a test on my YouTube channel kind of proving this theory that the differences in your playing level when you play with different materials is minuscule all these things are exaggerated in your mind because you are so obsessed on equipment and you are blaming the equipment first before blaming other factors so let me just give an example i can go out and play a match we talked about the head prestige that i didn't like and i can probably play very close to if not my normal level with that same racket you know with the head prestige compared to my racket. So, but in your mind, I feel like you exaggerate things to the point where you make it, you make it almost too important. And I think yeah, that, can be a, I that, can be, that can be a problem, you know, that can be a problem. I think it's a, very, it's a healthier attitude and this kind of goes against, this very much goes against like marketing for rackets and people often don't like when I say this, but you know, you should, if you like, if you like something, like just stick with it and don't ever think about it twice, whether it's a racket, whether it's strings. And I know that the only problem people run into is that, you know, rackets get discontinued and they're difficult to come by. So just stock up on your rackets and just continue using it. And, you know, I know people, they get so obsessed with, with, with tennis rackets where they start customizing their rackets and they they add a little bit of weight here they're putting weight in the handle they're getting all super super into it and they're like 3.5 level you know or 4.0 level like um, that's not where you're that's not going to be your big difference maker you know you got other things to worry about other than rackets I think it's it becomes this partly it's because a marketing thing like yeah. having worked in marketing for like 20 years it's it's like if you can buy a problem away right. you know it's much easier, right? Also, uh, it's fun. So it's like, okay, maybe this racket, because it's fun to test if it feels better, even if you know you're not going to get better by it. Right. Like it's, it's a fun, people find it fun. But I usually caution, I'm, I give you the same advice. Like, you know, I, I give the same advice. It's like, if I get emails, I have this racket, I love this racket, but I want to try this racket. I'm like, you have a racket that you love. Exactly. There is no reason in hell for you to change and try everything, anything right. else. So if I play with guys and I bring eight rackets because some guys want to try pro levels as well. Like they want to, oh, I want to try this. I want to try that. Like they play ATP 200, right. you know, they want to try some rackets. But I also can be a guy who plays 3-0, right. right? They want to try old rackets right. just because it's fun to try. But that kind of where it stops because usually like you should just stick to what works exactly. for you. you exactly. Exactly. I I completely agree, but it, it's it's that. But it's the marketing. It's also the 
the like level of like there's so many rackets being produced now like because they know to ex like keep up with sales you need to release new models and that kind of is like a shiny new thing like i play guitar right, right. so i it's the same with guitar where like you you want you don't want one guitar you want to have seven guitars and maybe 15 guitars and for some people it's the same with cars if they have a lot of money right, right? but but it's it, with rackets it can be that you're like oh oh maybe i should change it looks great this new model but Usually people's tennis takes a dip. Like I know I hurt my tennis every time I test a new racket. If I just play with the same racket for two months, yeah. I play much better. I play That's much better. Saying. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. You know, it is true. It is true. Why exactly? It might be different from players and it's a very complex thing to explain. But, and I'm not saying it's wrong necessarily to change rackets if you're playing poorly. You can, but I do think it's a problem of the constant um, switching of rackets, the constant um, customization of rackets to think that that's going to be your solution to improve your tennis game. I think that's where people go wrong. No. And I saw you made a video, I think it's also which a good, it's probably the best point, which is the least sexy thing for to work on. It's like the footwork, being on your toes, being low, you know, legs up wide apart, all that Listen. stuff, which is comes natural to to early players. You know, of course, it's a lot of fun to go go and get your rackets balanced and you know have them all the exact same weight and to to pontificate about rackets and 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 add a gram here, a gram there. But it's it's probably not as much fun to go out there and hit like a thousand forehands or a thousand backhands. And really, if you have some flaws to to work on those flaws and correct them, that that's tedious work. But that's work that that's going to provide the best results. You know, independent yeah. of what, what equipment you're using, especially, I would say that um, the lower your level, the less important it is what exact racket you're using, I would say, as long as you're playing with something that's not going to give you pain, then it becomes important. But like, yeah, I think, again, I don't want to be repetitive, but pick something that like for a rec player, that's lower level, pick something that's comfortable for you that doesn't give you pain. And uh, that maximizes your game, that feels good in your hand, and just focus on your game itself. And just kind of forget about rackets. I know this is like anti-marketing, but just forget about it. Like, just don't, don't, don't think about yeah. it. Don't. I know the marketing is strong, and they, it's always more, more feel, more power, more spin. But you already have all that with your racket, and you don't need more of it. You know, don't fall into the, don't fall into those no, marketing I, tricks. I generally agree. You know. Yeah, and it, and like you say, it it gets to that if it's a problem to find the model, you know, I I'd still you know there's always ways to find it generally. Like if you have some uh, some, I mean, you can always Google around the world and you'll find the racket you you like. Sure. And also, it's so nice to not be able to think about that to take that out of the equation because, like you said, if you, it's very easy for a pro, for a beginner, for an intermediate player to blame the racket. Yeah. Like it's very easy to say, hey, these strings are old. That's why I missed the ball. But it's not like how you prepare or that the racket, like the, the angle of the racket face was wrong. It, it's the strings <laughs> that was wrong. Right? The, the first connection you're going to make, and this applies to all players, regardless of the level, the first connection you're going to make to that mistake is going to be your equipment. And it's going to be your strings or your racket. It's not going to be, you're not going to like yeah. analyze, you're not going to say, you know, like the racket didn't matter. I messed up here. Maybe afterwards you will, but initially, that's for a lot of players. That's where their mind goes right away. Yeah, you know? 
I, I think that's why it's so important to, uh, and that's on all levels, right? Uh, I think I see like both recreational players that just like after they make a, a shank or they hit a weird shot, they look at the racket like it's like, what did you do to me? <laughs> you know, it's like I was opposed to that. Like they look at the strings like something's off here because that shot would have been. I yeah. do that too. You know, but I want to just make one more point. I, I really, I want to. This is important to me because I've met a lot of a lot of recreational players that are huge fans of rackets and I'm a fan of rackets too. I have more than 50 rackets. I'm a racket collector. I love it. Oh, wow. Oh yeah. I have a, That's good. I have a RF 97. I have a head prestige. I have old rack. I have weird rackets. Like I have the, the two handled racket. I have the, uh, weed. I have the Bubba, uh, razor. I don't know if you're familiar with these. These are like crazy. Yo, no, no, I'm familiar yeah. with all these, but, uh, and I saw you did a video with the Snowwert as well. The weird ergonomic I have that, rackets. I have that one too. So, so I, I know players who love tennis and they love rackets. And I love these type of people because I love people who love tennis, okay? So I know yeah. this one guy in particular has like hundreds of rackets. He's a collector. He buys everything. And he just buys it for, for fun. And he might even use it and hit a few balls with it. And he puts some of them on the wall. And that's perfectly fine. Like that, that to me is like beautiful. I do the same thing. So don't take what I'm saying. And like if you like tennis rackets um then by all means buy them you know i'm just going more from the development aspect just telling you that that's not necessarily the solution to always looking for a better racket that's going to improve your game yeah that's a very good point and i, I also i mean like i'm, I'm to say i know a lot of guys who have 500 rackets 300 rackets i have like 120 maybe yeah. because you know you test all this stuff but I don't have a connection to them. Right. So if like they, someone told me they disappeared, I'll be like, okay, fine. I have some rackets that I, I you know, like, yeah, I have a Novak personal, Mari personal, right. Agassi personal. Those, you know, they are, you know, a bit special to me in a way, but the rest, yeah, I don't really care, right. you know? And and also I don't care if someone gives me a racket, like I'm in Sweden now, I'm playing, you know, and they are, oh, I got two rackets here I'm supposed to test. Never play with them. I can play fine with them. It's not like I need my special racket to play decent tennis. I can play fine mm -hmm. with this racket. You know, it's it's it, it's also not. I know how it's not the most important thing about my game. It's how I'm feeling on the day, how I'm moving, you know, everything else. So, so that's it. But I think it's important to ask yourself, what's the purpose of your tennis? If it's just to have fun and test rackets, fine, do it. You know, and also beware that testing too much gear can be a bit bad to the arm, like because you you have different rackets, different strings, different weights, different grips. And it cannot be, it's not always good for well, you. Can, I, can I add one more thing? Yeah, you can add as much as so, you want. In my personal opinion, I feel like the racket technology really hasn't changed that much. And I talked about this on my channel where I took out a old Prince Graphite from Michael Chang. And then I had a very modern racket and the materials. And you correct me, please, if I'm wrong, but it appears that it's the same materials. It's graphite and the shape of the racket it's very similar the the thickness of the beam like the racket that was produced 30 years ago it's very similar to the rackets that are produced now but what's not similar is the string technology so in my opinion it's the strings that revolutionized tennis more than the rackets of course the rackets revolutionized tennis too when they when it switched from the wood to the you know steel and then to the to the graphite ultimately that undoubtedly changed tennis a lot. But I feel like in the early 2000s, with the introduction of the um, Luxilon uh, Big Banger original, yeah. to, in my opinion, that 
revolutionized tennis more than anything else. And it has created what we now call modern tennis, where guys have the freedom to rip the ball as hard as they can without sacrificing con control. And I feel like it's the strings that did that and not necessarily the rackets. Uh, no, I 100% agree. I think I've made some videos about that in the past as well. But it's like polyester. If you play with a multi-filament string or a gut string right. setup, like I had Serena Williams racket in the office the other uh, day, and she played full gut in 2010, right? right? Full gut, 65 pounds, almost oversized racket, 104 square inch right. racket, 360 swing weight, which is very heavy, right? Because it's 28 inches, so it's extra long. That's a racket for Serena. I don't give that to anyone else, right? That's a very Serena racket. I had Justine Henin Hardan's racket as well, which is one of my favorite players to watch in the WTA because she had such a beautiful game. Uh, very rare on the WTA tour. And also very high swing weight, very low static weight. Only for her, I would say. You know, So it's like um, copying pros, overthinking rackets, it's not generally a good idea. But the strings make a difference. So if you have multi-filament or gut, it's going to not give you the same bite, not going to give you the same movement of the string, not the same launch angle. So this you can always you know change play around we try a hybrid not you know uh and, and but i agree the polyesters and from 2000 i would say when the pure drive came pure drive ish aero pro drive mm -hmm. since then they haven't changed much like i think that racket with the more aerodynamic beam was a quite a game changer in some ways but after that i think it's been 20 years of very much the same thing no you're right about on repeat. and i made a video i don't know if you've seen it top five rackets of all time and I put the yeah, I think I I put the, the arrow and the pure drive at two and three of all time. Those are revolutionary rackets. I mean, I can tell yeah. you like how many. I think at one point, the arrow was the most used racket in the top five hundred in the world, on the male side and the female side. Yeah. At one point, I think a lot of, and this is a trend that I've been seeing. A lot of players are kind of going away from Babolat and switching to Yonex. But yeah, that racket, the the arrow with that mold. That was a revolutionary racket. Yeah. And it's still great. I mean, like, if you take the first generation Aero Pro Drive that Rafa uses, yeah. which have the slightly denser pattern, so you have a bit more control, that's still a fantastic racket. Like, that's, that's still fantastic. So, you know, even if you use that racket now and you're like, ah, should I switch? If you have four of that racket, why should you? You don't need to switch. Yeah. It's fine. That racket is great. Now, if you so, want to, like, know a little personal story, I am a huge Rafa fan. I don't know if you knew that. Huge. He's definitely my favorite player of all time. Um, and I wanted really badly to play with his racket. So initially when I switched from the Wilson Hyperhammer 5.2, I was testing rackets and I was trying many different rackets and I had all of the different versions of the, of the arrow. They even made a longer one because I like a racket to be a little bit longer. And um, for whatever the reason, I just couldn't play with it. The only thing that got better in my game with that racket was my kick serve. I felt like my kick serve was better, yeah. but everything else just felt felt a little bit worse, you know. So that that's why I ended up going with the pure drive because it suited my game a little bit more. Because naturally, I'm more of a flat ball striker. So the fact that the racket is design, designed so aerodynamically to benefit spin didn't really benefit me. It actually took away from my game a little bit. No, I, I if if I could see your, I mean, I've seen your game yeah. many times, obviously, and. I would also say that if I see your stroke, yeah. I would not recommend the arrow. I would recommend like an E-Zone or a pure drive that goes through the ground. Because that's how you play. So, uh, that makes a lot of sense. Also I wish you. I could play with that racket. Yeah, it's a beautiful, racket. beautiful racket. And also, Rafa, I'm a big Rafa fan. Uh, super nice guy as well. And like even played doubles with Tony once. Oh, he did? Uh, nice. Yeah, on grass. Oh, that's uh, amazing. That was cool, actually. 
Yeah, he's a cool guy. He, he he's can hit a drop shot. We played doubles against Barbara Shett and some other player, and uh, it, it was fun. What? And don't have to answer this if you don't want to. But what what rating would you think Tony is? NTRP. It's tough. Five zero. I think five five zero. Five zero. Yeah, he seems like a pretty good player. Yeah, he's a pretty but good he player. Didn't... I think he, he he understands a lot about tennis, but from what I could see, he's like his hands are the key. Hands are key. Right? He's a very good yeah. hands. Yeah. But he never. He. I don't think he ever played, did he? Did he ever play competitive? I know. No, not like on any high level, right? Got I it. don't think so. Okay. Yeah. But going back to the point, he... the previous point that we made, just so we don't we don't lose track, like we we're talking about the the biggest impact on on the tennis game, right? Comparing rackets to strings, and then you brought up the the Rafa racket, which I agree with 100%. That was a big game changer. But in my opinion, the strings changed tennis forever. And so when we're talking about the recreational level, I do think the strings are going to be more important for the player that they find a string that suits them well than the racket. The differences in the rackets is going to be less than the differences in the strings. I still feel like the differences in strings are huge. Huge. Whether you're playing with natural gut, whether you're playing with synthetic gut, multi-filament, whether you're playing with Kevlar, whether you're playing the different types of polys that are around and different type of gauges, it's going to make a huge difference how those strings are going to behave. So I think that's very important to select the yeah. correct string. I, yeah, I agree. More than the racket. I think the string is... Yeah, I think the string is the more important than the racket. Like it's it's you could argue fifty fifty. Like you have a shit racket with a good string, yeah, you know, and a, and a good you know racket with a bad string. I probably prefer the sh the shit racket with the good string, right? I mean, or the racket. Not saying it's shit, but it's like a mediocre or whatever. I agree with one because I think if you have a favorite string, and I I test so many strings, I test everything, yeah. right? I test all the rackets, all the strings, uh, which is which is a bit crazy at times. But I know straight away if I like the string or not, pretty much. Like, I know exactly what I want from the string, right? I, and I can say the racket is like, it's not for me, but it's like blah, 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 blah. But the string, I feel like a connection. Like, if I have a, a reel or like I have maybe four or five strings I, I think are perfect for me that I love, like they're dependable. I know exactly what I get. I like the sound. I like the feeling in the string bed. That's fine then, you know. Then I can take a ra I can take my father's racket and like, okay, I'll play with your racket. I'll just bring this real string and I'll train the strings, right? So it's, I'm extremely it's sensitive to strings, extremely and I've made a video on my channel that a lot of people misunderstood. They, they, again, they don't understand the, the, the individuality, you know, how tennis equipment affects each player individually. Um, I made a video titled Natural Gut versus Poly, where I play with, um, I think it was Babylon VS Full Bed. And, I, and then I had uh, my string, which is the Kiosbaum Super Smash Orange. So, um, I did a play test. I played a tie break with the gut, and then I played a tie break with the with the poly, and it, same same racket, right? I guess yeah. Same racket, and yeah. I did not put on a show. People were accusing me of putting on a show and faking the whole thing. I didn't. I played full out both tie breaks, and the differences were were night and day. Um, so again, like personally, I'm super sensitive to strings. If I get a string that I don't like, I'll cut it out immediately. And I'm willing to try different strings, no doubt about it, but I'm, I'm super sensitive. More sensitive than with rackets. Yeah, and I think the pros are the same. So, like, if a pro changes strings, uh, it might sound like it's a very small thing, but for them, it's a big deal, huge. right? So, if they test a new string, it's a huge deal. Huge. So, it sounds like, oh, you know, so he's testing a different string. Is, and it, is that like, who cares? But I'm like, 
yeah, for them, it's huge. Like, they, they, they hit a million balls, right? You have to understand. Like, if they don't feel the 100% confidence in the gear, they're not going to win because on that level, the level is so high, the intensity is so high, so they need everything. It's like a Formula One race car. These this players are like, they need the physique, the, everything has to be top to compete on the ATP or WTA. It's, it's, it's insane. Yeah, but this is where it's a game of percentages at that level, you know, like where everybody is so good. Everybody does everything so good. It comes down to these small little percentages, mental game, yeah. maybe like, you know, form on that particular day. It's just so complicated to explain, but it's like uh, like one player is going to be 1% better than the other one on a, on a particular day to determine uh, the winner. Generally speaking, of course, you got guys that are you know a little bit stronger, but generally speaking, everybody is so good that it's the smallest differences can make a big difference. And I think that's why players pay attention to absolutely everything. They have to, because everything could yeah. make that small difference at the end of the day. No, no, it's, that's important. And it's like if they get, like they're the same with stringing, right? If they get the wrong tension yeah. or they feel like the stringer didn't pay attention, the stringing is important yeah. as well. Because if you if you have a sloppy stringer, you're going to have an inconsistent string bed. You're not going to get any control from even a good string. So yeah. it's like for them, it's like, okay, I, don't, I feel something's wrong. Something is off here because they want to play with the exact same feeling every single time. They don't want to think about Do that. Do you want to hear a story that's related to what we yeah, 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 I'm always up for um, stories. So... When I finished playing college tennis, I started teaching immediately. Like I never tried to play futures or anything like that. And um, ended up working in Hawaii. And my boss was the tournament director of uh, Challenger and a Futures. And he held a wildcard tournament at the club um, where I was working and ended up winning the, the this wildcard tournament. And I just and I actually got a walkout for the for the futures main draw. But at that wow. moment in time, I wasn't playing anymore. I only had one racket to my name, because um, that's another long story. I won't get into it now. But I had one hyper hammer, five point two. So I needed to like have this racket freshly strung before every match in that walkout tournament. And I ended up it ended up being okay. It held up, and I knew that I needed to. Um, string this racket freshly before my first round main draw at the Futures. So I'm at the club, uh, stringing the racket like a couple hours before the match. And I am uh, done with the racket. I'm about to tie a knot. And I look down and I realize that a tool from the string, it was one of those, um, I don't know what the exact name is, but it's almost like an ice pick that you use to make yeah, the yeah, tool yeah, a little yeah, bigger. Yeah. Yeah. The handle of that, somehow got stuck between the string and I had already tied the knot so that I had to do like a little racket surgery and fix that. And it was awful. It was awful. The racket on top was like, there was absolutely no tension in the strings on the very top, but I had no time. I had no time uh, to uh, string this racket again. I only had one racket and that's the only racket I could play with. So I went to the match with this racket that was strung so badly and I tell you the entire match I had in my head was the the fact that my racket was bad I ended up losing like I played a good player but like I think I had chances and I ended up losing 7-5-6-2 or something like that and, but I blamed the racket heavily in that match yeah yeah because I mean that then you also you saw what happened so it's not like you're just a ghost in your head where you're like okay maybe the string is screwed up I have a feeling there's something wrong here you actually saw 
that this is not good. So it's going to stick in your head even more, you know. So the, but the lesson that I teach from that it, to, to players is something that I love Brad Gilbert. He's one of my favorite coaches of all time. And the book Winning Ugly is such a great book. It's held up over here. Yeah, it's very good. And he said the things that you have full control over, you, you have to give yourself the best possible preparation. So I tell players, you have to have several freshly strung rackets in your bag so that you never run into a scenario where you pop all your strings so you have to play with a racket that's like strung too loosely or whatever i had a match in germany a club uh, a club match where i ended up popping all my strings and my dad had to run around the club and, and borrow rackets for me to finish the match so you have to have many rackets in your bag not only that but you also have to have a racket that's strung a little bit tighter, one that's strung a little bit looser. Maybe the conditions are going to change. Maybe the, it's going to start raining. The balls are going to get, get soggy, and maybe you need a little bit looser racket. You know, maybe you're going to come out, and all of a sudden you're going to feel completely different. You're going to be a little bit tight. You know, maybe a looser racket can help you. Um, so you have to give yourself every possible option to play your best tennis when you prepare your bag. So what I did in that match was absolutely ridiculous. And I do think that maybe made a, made a small difference. You know, the fact that, that this was upset, I had this racket in my, in my head because it was the only racket I had. And something similar happened to me when I played. I signed up for a Futures here in Florida for fun. It was like the only Futures I ever signed up here in, in Florida for. This was a few years back and I ended up playing well. I won three rounds in the qualies and I played in the final of the qualies. And again, I... I only had like I think two rackets and I broke the good one and I ended up playing with a racket um, that was completely cracked. I ended up playing with a cracked racket. Um, so I ended up losing this match in three sets. And again, I do think that maybe if I had my equipment taken care of, you know, I would have performed a little better. So lesson learned is that what I was doing there was I already was done with my tennis career. And I didn't really care. I didn't really have any rackets and it was the the Hyper Hammer 5.2 was discontinued. That's why I didn't have that many of them. But what I teach players is to be perfectly prepared with your bag and and give yourself the best chances to win and have multiple rackets, freshly strung with different different tensions. Also, make sure that you freshly grip your rackets. You don't play with an old old grip. You know, make sure that you do have grips with you. And maybe even depending on the level of the tournament that you're at. Have your strings with you. Maybe you can send the racket off to be strong um, in your match, and maybe you'll get it back by, in, in time. And maybe it can help you too. So, yeah, be prepared when it comes to your equipment for sure. Don't be like me in those in those futures. That was ridiculous. No, I, I, yeah, I think that's a great lesson. I think that's uh, it's it's one of those things that you. I mean, you sometimes see the players like you know. I mean, Curios, for example, when I met him in in Boss Open in Stuttgart. Yeah. Yeah, I think he lost his bags, you know, so he had no nothing. He had to go and buy like clothes and stuff. Like he's a guy; he, he generally is very relaxed. So he's like, ah, I can play with. He, he's a frying pan guy. You feel like almost. Uh -huh. um, but for most people, just take the equipment of the equation and bring like a you know some you know energy kind of gel or drink or banana or whatever. But just make sure your bag is chill. Like you have maybe even a p extra pair of shoes or whatever. So yeah, if you're ready for like if you play a proper tournament, you have like a th three hour match. You're gonna need stuff, yeah. you know. So. Be prepared is, is, is very important. And uh, like that with maybe one kilo higher or, or, you know, two pounds higher, two pounds lower strength tension, I think makes a lot of sense because temperatures might drop, 
they might go up. You might be playing in a stadium with no people first, or like I say, I mean, like a, you know, it's like a, and then it's a packed, and then it's like suddenly the temperatures rise and the balls just fly. You know, it's like changes everything. Well, if you want to talk more broadly, um, what I think is huge is to have a new pair of shoes in your in your bag and a new pair of socks. And then maybe if you're, you know, if you play in two sets in humid conditions and your socks are drenched and your shoes are wet, you put on new, a fresh pair of socks and brand new shoes in the beginning of the third set, you're gonna feel like a, like a new man. You're gonna feel so fresh. So these are all things that can tremendously help you, you know? And so this is yep, why preparation with equipment when you play tennis is, is absolutely huge. Yeah. extra shirt as well like just getting that fresh feeling when you have to reboot your head you know maybe like third set you lost second set in a tie break new stuff like what do you think yeah. shorts you know maybe go in a go in a locker room and change your shorts like rafa does you yeah. do that you feel better on the court you know people might not think this is possible but you do like it's those little like little things that can make a difference in tennis you know where all of a sudden you feel a little bit better you start playing better your confidence goes up and all of a sudden you know you're winning or you were losing yeah. before it can make a difference yeah and tennis is such a feel game so if you feel good usually you play well right but if you don't feel very good depending on whatever you ate wrong or you you know you're just in a, you in a good you're mental state you're talking about like physically feeling like unwell or mentally yeah both 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 i would say yeah yeah of course if you're not feeling well it's, it's a battle out there you really gonna have to test how much of a fighter you are how much you really want it you know, yeah. it's just funny you, you bring this up because I just watched somebody posted a clip of Jordan playing um, in the playoffs when he had a flu and he was really sick and he did, didn't eat anything and he was completely drained and he still played an amazing game and ended up winning, got like 37 points. So <laughs> that's up to your your character as a player, you know, are you going to throw in the towel? You're going to really fight through adversity. But as far as like feeling from a mental standpoint, I do think there's a lot to it. It makes a big difference when you're feeling happy in your personal life where things are going well personally. I feel like you play better. I feel like when things are not going well, you don't, you don't do well. Of course, everybody's going to be a little bit different. Again, individuality, it gets complex. But what I've found with me and some of the players that I coach that when you have your stuff taken care of off the court, and you're feeling good about your life, this is going to translate well into your tennis game. Yeah, 100%. I think you see that on all levels, but also with, like, with the pros. If they're like in a state of flux, they're going through a divorce. Like Even like Rafa, when his parents got divorced, which was a huge thing to him and his family, right? A sure. uh, very close-knit family. He couldn't. He wasn't Rafa for a while, right? Like there was like obvious tension, you know, that he doesn't usually have. He's usually like a fighter, no matter what. There's an earthquake five meters outside the arena. He doesn't right. care. He's gonna win anyway, right? But with this stuff, was was too much for him. Yeah, I agree one hundred percent. One thing I want to ask more about brackets before we go move on to other topics is that you have you're still with your extended pure drive, but it's painted white. Or am I uh, am I wrong? Um, you know, I really like I. There's a reason why I haven't really answered any questions on this. And people, I mean, it's crazy. On a daily basis, I get a question, what racket is that? And then people are guessing, is this the Wilson Shift? Is this a Technifiber? I'm going to hopefully be able to reveal soon uh, I, uh, what's going on with my racket. But right now, I'm going to have to decline the, to talk about my racket just for now. But hopefully soon, I'll be able to tell, tell people... Uh, and, and tell you what's going on in my, with my racket situation. Cool. No, I like that. 
No, I, I thought so as well. I, I probably know the, well, I have a feeling yeah. what, what the answer is, but I, yeah. you know, so I know it makes sense. I would say I, I would do the same thing. Like it would be, yeah. you know, so, so I, I completely agree yeah. with that point, but it's, it's funny how many racket questions you get. Like, I mean, I expect to get like a billion racket yeah. questions, you know, a string question. This is what I, I do with yeah. kind of my expertise. But like for you, I would more like say, hey man, as a 3.5 level player, what would you think would be the biggest? Like my forehand, I can't keep, you know, my take back is, is too complicated or whatever, you know, but you still get racket questions. I get a lot of racket questions. Yeah, tons. And it's so funny <laughs> because in all my videos, I think, or most of them, I say, I cannot give you, I cannot give you a recommendation because I don't know you. I don't know how you play. Like if you were taking lessons with me and observe you, maybe I can give you like a hint in what direction to go to. But I can't give you any advice. I can just give you general, these general guidelines that I created where I tell people like if you're a beginner, you go with a lighter racket. If you're an intermediate, you go something in between. And if you're an advanced recreational player, you can pretty much play with whatever you want. And even within that, there are going to be cases where intermediates can play with super heavy rackets based on muscle memory or you know genetic predispositions or whatever so it's super complex i can't really get into uh, i can't really give you advice and i say this every time and despite that i still get questions you know uh what do you think i should play with what do you think about this racket that racket you know what do you think? <laughs> so, like yeah. i just i can't really i'm sorry i can't really give you um, a general uh, i can only give you general guidelines no, it's the same for me. Like I get millions of comments and, and you know, emails, Facebook messages, WhatsApp messages, yeah. whatever they can find. And like when I do the consultations, I usually ask for footage of playing so I can at least get an idea. And then I try to always give four, even sometimes five or three, at least within a range where I know, like I were, I you, you know, have so many uh, hundreds of players, like or thousands of players yeah. now with like specific advice. And you see, okay, this will work for you. If If it's a very personal situation, it might not. But based on my, you know, experience with dealing with so many players and rackets, it's like, okay, this is kind of the range. And and usually people want, like we talked about before, they want to go heavier than they think they need to, right? They Instinctively, they want to play with tour, pro, some very difficult racket. And when I give them maybe like advice on lighter rackets, they're a bit like, aha, you know, it's this going to be, you know, this going to be difficult. Like, or this going to be like not stable enough or something, you know, but... Uh, it definitely helps. You have to see. I think in general you have to see. Like or you have to get like some people they write like a novel. So if I get a, a form where there's seven, eight, ten different things to to reply to, they write two two pages of A4 on about their tennis. Yes. You know, and that takes time to go through. Like that's not like something you just oh, okay, okay, okay. You know, a it's tremendous a tremendous amount of time to read through these comments. I mean, some people write yeah. whole essays, and just like you, yeah. I get this stuff. Um, in my personal email box and I try to respond to, to everyone, but it's hard, it's hard to take like five minutes or 10 minutes out of your day and read that stuff. I mean, I try, I give, I do, I try my hardest to do this, but uh, it's tough, you know? And especially, yeah. and I mean, you especially doing it for free. You know what I mean? Like, no, no, no. I, I think also people expect too much generally yeah. of content people, because exactly. you put in like, you you just talk about your content. Your content is, you have like a paid service where you can go to Intuitive Tennis, you know, sign right. up and, and get like in-depth stuff. Mm -hmm. But the stuff you do on YouTube is for free. Like unless you want like YouTube premium, you have to pay YouTube something to just have no ads. Right. But overall, overall, everything is free. Same with me. Like I give loads of free content. Right. I cannot give like free personal advice 
it, I don't have the time. I'm one guy. Like I, I do. Like I have a website. I like you. You know, Instagram, Facebook, all this stuff. You can't just like your time is every, all you have in life. You know. So if you yeah, you can work twenty four seven all the time, you still won't be able to answer like fifty percent of the emails and messages and everything. So Look, it's like this is something that I talk about a lot on my channel, and the classic thing that I get. Maybe on a almost almost daily basis, is people sending me videos of their strokes, and they they ask me, "What do you think I'm doing wrong?" You know. So I just compare this to like other professions where like you would go to someone and expect them to to give you like give a service completely for free. You know, it, it's just something that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. People wouldn't do this in real life. They would uh, you know hire you for a lesson and then ask you. Uh, but online, for some reason, they feel like they, they can do this. And very early on, I did respond to some of these people. I tried to give them some general tips and tell them, like, you know, if you want me to go in depth, you got to pay for a video analysis. But now I'm to a point where I can't even I can't even look at the videos. I just don't have the time to commit to that. You know, I, I don't think people understand that this is my personal time. This is personal coaching that I'm providing to you. I cannot do that for free. Like I have my free content, my all my videos are free on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. It's all free. It doesn't cost you anything. But if you want me to be your coach and look at your serve or your forehand or your backhand, I can't do that for free. You gotta, you, you're gonna have to pay me, and um, that, that's that's it. But I'm sure that um, everybody gets this who's in our our field. You know, I'm sure it's very common. But, uh, yeah, people? no, I think people people want stuff for free. I think the internet kind of opened this, uh, like you said, like it's it's open. Like I would never expect anyone to give me anything for free. Like that's just how I grew up. I mean, like an old school guy. But I'll buy a lesson, like, right? Like, Wouldn't you go, like you want to get trained? So you would just buy a lesson. You would figure out how yeah. on the website. You would buy the service, and then you get the coaching, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I'm the same with like software and stuff. If like I use a software. Now I'm I'm older. I have more money. Like I I pay for the so I mean it's not an expensive software, but like I I'll, I'll pay for the stuff I like and use. Right. You know, partly I feel like that's my duty. Right. I'm paying. I'm not gonna go to like Pirate Bay or stuff when you did when he was younger. Yeah. You know, like oh I can't afford like a you know Final Cut or whatever. But now like if you can't afford it, but I get it from people who obviously can't afford stuff. And if they can't, okay, fair enough. You know, I get it, but. But it's also like a one-person thing, so you can't just give from yourself your whole like your life is not only work, so you have to have like time to be a human as well. So it's it's like people have a sometimes tough time understanding this. You know, they want so much yeah. from you. you yes, know? it's true. It's very true. I get it on Instagram, so I'm sure you get this. People write you a question. I try to reply often to questions on Instagram, which you know sometimes I shouldn't, yeah. but I do that. And then or in stuff I don't reply, I don't miss it. I don't have time. I just ignore uh -huh. it they started writing like question mark. Like I haven't seen it. Like, <laughs> like it's like, you owe me a reply. I'm like, eh, well, you know, I can't owe it. I've gotten that too. I've gotten a lot of, they're on a, for whatever the reason is out of all my social medias, Instagram is the one the where I get the most trolls by far. And I even yeah. get to the point uh, where, um, in my DMS, but thankfully there is a filter there. You know, you don't have to, you don't have to open it. You can delete it right away. But, um, I've gotten threatened like in there physically. Oh, wow. Yeah, I've got some really bad hate, hate messages. Um, Why? <laughs> there was a certain videos that for whatever, for whatever reason, triggered that person, 
you know, certain topics, certain videos that are made triggered mm-hmm. that person. Um, and yeah, so I've gotten that. I know I took screenshots of that because I, that, you know, when you get the threat, you take it seriously. So of course didn't reply. Um, but yeah, also sometimes you're so right. Somebody will send you a, a question, you don't respond and then they get upset that you didn't respond and they start cussing yep. you out. You know? so, yep. <laughs> they don't realize that they, like, they, you get there's on Instagram, there's so many messages that you get from like, from companies that are trying to work with you from there's scammers on there. There's all kinds of stuff happening on there. Like my, I can't even, if I go into my DM thing, I can't even, there's so many people in there. I don't even know where to begin to be quite honest with you. Like it's great. No, no. And you, you, you get fatigued, fatigued. right? You don't so remember you get tired if somebody sent you a message like uh, two months ago, that's somewhere down, way down in your, in your message feed. You don't remember that person or, you know, so it's hard. It's very hard. No, it's the same. I, I noticed that. And sometimes you feel like, you know, when people turn off like comments or turn off stuff, they just, just post it. And like, like it looks so relaxing. It looks like you just post it and leave it, you know? What are you talking about? Explain. Like, for example, on you, I mean, this is not Instagram. You can't, I guess you can't turn stuff off. Maybe you can't turn off comments and stuff. But like on YouTube, for example, yeah. like some, some channels, they turn off the comments. Like, I, I guess that's bad for the engagement, yeah. but it must be very relaxing to have that turned off so you can't get any interaction. You're just like posting it. And if you like it or not, you know, I'm what so up, glad up you to brought you. that up. I think it's like, it's such a bad look. That's just my opinion, but I hate yeah. people that turn off their comments because it makes them, yeah, it yeah. makes them, it makes them look like a big P, P word. You know what I mean? It's yeah, just yeah, like, yeah. you can't take it. Like if you're going to make something that's going to hurt people, like just take it. Like, don't, don't like, see, this is the beautiful thing about YouTube is that it's, it's such a public thing. And we do have the comment section. Like sometimes on Netflix, I wish there was a comment section, right? Because yep. that's the beautiful thing about YouTube. So when you don't give the people the chance to speak their mind, I think it's a very, very weak, weak move. Yeah, and also there's information to gain. Like I often see, I, I tend to go for the positive stuff. Like if, if I listen to a song or something I see on YouTube, yeah. I want to read well, how other people resonated with that oh. song or with like, the, and you feel like a connection to that in a weird way. Like that it's like, I don't look for this shit. Like I don't look for oh, some politics stuff where people go crazy sure. and the comments is just full of trolls. But it, it, it's nice to be able to use, it's a social media, right? So you connect that way. Absolutely. So I think the comments feel is good. I think like the ins, like the DMs is, is an interesting field because that is a bit I'll weird. Be honest you know, but I don't think it's right. I'll be really honest with you. I, I never liked the idea that people can DM you on Instagram. I, I never liked that, that idea, you know, because you can't on YouTube. But like you can literally DM anyone. Huh? Yep. You can't turn it off though. Oh, Some you can turn it off? But you could try yeah. to DM Roger Federer, you know, like yeah, he turned it off. For example, oh, did he really? But but Rafa has not, for example. Not, so okay. it's different. So yeah. I but would, I guess they have some person managing them, right? Yeah, so I would never in a million years like bother these guys, like tag them or try to DM them or anything like that. So like it just I don't know. But I don't like that that aspect of Instagram. I really hate. I, I don't like. The, I mean, the DM can be super useful though for for real conversations. If somebody really wants to work with you, really wants to collaborate with you, if a brand wants to work with you, it's fantastic. But all that other yeah. nonsense, I could live without, you know? Yeah, I think you have to be a pretty 
strict with what you uh, reply to, I guess, filter, like, and be a, be a bit like, I, sometimes I try to be too much of a nice guy, you well, know, and that's not one thing I learned in all my years on these years on social media, I don't respond anymore to, uh, to like negative stuff. If somebody like is cussing me out in the DMs or telling me how wrong it is, what I said, like, I don't, I'm not going to get into a conversation with you. I'm just not, I'm not, I'm not going to respond. Nope. That's good. Because what I've learned the hard way is that if you try to talk to that person and try to change their mind, you can't. You can't change anybody's mind in the comment section. They already had their mind made up. Like I, when I first got on social media, I'll never forget this. It was very early on. Maybe I was doing it for three months. I got into this like, I'm not joking. It was like a 70 or 80 uh, thread, 70 or 80 message thread exchange back and forth with one person where I was trying to explain my position. This is something like some technical thing on the forehand or something like that. I don't even remember what it was. And I was going back and forth and I was explaining myself and I was providing proof and I was doing this and that and nothing worked. Other people started to get involved and it was a, it was a whole thing. And then I said something at the end and the guy got mad. And since he posted the first comment, he deleted the whole thing and the whole thing was gone. And so I was like, I just wasted like hours of my day on this with absolutely no resolution. The guy didn't learn anything. He, this was the biggest waste of time ever. And it was a lesson learned. And I still remember, I'll never forget that. Never. No, I think it's also, there's so much time wasted on Twitter, Instagram. Like there's so much just time. Like whether you scroll, whether you comment, there's just time. And when you do content and you, you do a lot of it, you can't waste that time. Like it's, it's not, this is not worth it. Really. Well, you know, if you want to talk about the different platforms as far as tennis, I'm not on Twitter anymore. I, I mean, I am on Twitter, but I'm not really active on there. I don't really go into the conversations or anything. But for, to me, it's like the most negative platform for tennis is Twitter. It's very negative. It's a lot of in general. I think yeah. people that are hating on players that are, you know, talking bad about players, criticizing their whatever in the comment section is is pretty toxic it's pretty toxic yep. i think that's like more than any other platform i think twitter is is bad regarding that and i really sometimes hope that these players especially if they're younger are not reading that stuff i hope, I hope not no. because it's not fun to read some of the stuff some of the stuff people are writing you know no i, I would as a player since they can get like death threats from gambling addicts right. and shit like that they get that stuff as a player i would probably turn off comments and not be on twitter twitter is more like this is like full of trolls right it's trolls.com yeah. twitter right so yeah. so i would be like posting things on instagram because you need brand deals you need to be seen that's what people pay you yeah. for uh to, to make a business outside just winning tournaments of course. Uh, but i would like be really like not engaging you know i would be just post this that's it whoever's in their camp i dish like with should tell the player to um, get off social get off social media because like what happens is you know this these guys bet on a match and then they end up losing their money and they get mad at the player yeah and these guys are like they're horrible to the players with their rights absolutely horrible and why yeah, would yeah. you want no, to like... read that you know and I've seen some players yeah, yeah. get into it with these guys and they start responding to them and stuff like that. And I'm like, just don't even read it. Don't even, don't even know that this type of world exists. You shouldn't even be aware of this world. No. Just do your thing, you know. But it's hard, you know, because social media is so, it's so important, especially to the younger generation. It's hard. It's easier, say, it's easier said than done, you know. Yep.
No, I agree. How how is your uh, TikTok journey been? Like I I've just started it just because someone told me give it a try, and I'm I'm like this is when I when I scroll through TikTok yeah. I get worried about mankind. Like I just like is this is this what people spend time well, on? You know. I gotta be honest with you. Like it's it's out of all the platforms, it's my absolute favorite. Like YouTube and TikTok are my favorite. I don't really like Instagram that much, um, but I like TikTok and YouTube and it. TikTok, the algorithm is so precise that it knows exactly what you like to watch. So on my TikTok, it's all, it's no tennis whatsoever. It's all like cat videos, dog videos, and like, um, I don't know, snakes and elephants, just all animals and stuff like that. And I love it. And there's like a lot of um, like funny stuff, you know, like comedians and stuff like that. So it yeah. knows exactly what I like. And I'm actually very active on, on, on TikTok. I'm probably more active on there than any other platform. I will even comment on other people's videos. This videos that have absolutely nothing to do with tennis. And so very early on on my, my TikTok journey, um, I did create uh, TikTok, like TikTok content that was like trending on TikTok. So I would try to recreate trends and relate them to tennis. And I stopped doing that because I don't know. Even though it was fun to make these videos, they were a little bit cringy. Like they were a little bit on the cringy side. <laughs> so I stopped. And some of them did actually pretty well. But um, so now I kind of do just like just kind of more dry instructional uh, content. Don't try to be funny so much. Um, and I love it. I love I love that app so much. I just hit one million likes yesterday, which is huge. Very good. Huh? Congrats. I got like 49K. So it's very difficult to grow as on as a tennis creator on TikTok simply because tennis is not that popular with the younger audience, you know? Like no, you, you do notice that quickly when you're on TikTok. Yeah. Like that tennis is, is low on the priorities. And the tennis IQ of the people that comment on the videos that done well for me, I have one video that has 6.2 million views. The tennis IQ uh, on the commenter is non-existent. So these people absolutely don't know anything about tennis. So this is the unfortunate thing on TikTok is that you see a little bit more into like that tennis is really not that popular amongst the young generation. Where on YouTube, my audience, the vast majority of my audience is between the ages of, it's male, by the way, it's between the ages of 35 and 65. Yeah, it sounds like my yeah. audience. This is who watches tennis. This is the same people that watched uh, McEnroe Connors, Agassi, Sampras. They're still watching tennis today. This is the scary thing. Yep. It is a little bit scary. I, I have noticed the same phenomenon, yeah, right? Like if you take other sports, I mean, you're a Jordan fan as, as am I. I mean, I saw him in, I was in DC when he played for the Wizards, yeah. right? So, okay, he wasn't Jordan when he played for the Wizards. Right. So it's not really <laughs> fair you enough. You know what? He did but, actually pretty good there. He didn't do as bad as people make it out to be. He did play pretty well. Uh, he true. got hurt too. That's he true. got hurt. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he got hurt. Yeah, I remember that. But yeah, it was a big thing when you, when you lived there. Yeah, well, sorry but, to interrupt uh, you. Go ahead. No, 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 no. But it's like, you, you, basketball, you see some sports, they have this momentum. And tennis, I think, with like, I was worried for tennis. I mean, Fed, Rafa, you know, that's how I came back to tennis was like, Federer was just dominant. Then Rafa came, it was just a beautiful rivalry. Two guys, you kind of root for them both. Right. But, but you know, it's just huge battle. Everything was, was beautiful. It's like poetry, right? It's like a storyline in a movie. Right. So then, like, when they were getting older, Everybody talked about it like word, and then you have like Moratoglu, who's like, okay, we have need to have UTC like this uh, ultimate tennis tennis showdown right. stuff, which is very very different. Um, and now you get like Alcaraz, you get Rune, you get some good players that play yeah. like spectacular. They know every shot. They they are so explosive sure. in their movement. 
So you get some hope. But on the other hand, like the overall trend in society, I don't think favors tennis that much. So it's, it's like that's that's my not word. at all. I just made a video titled um, "Stop Watching Highlights," which some people misunderstood. The video. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that. I actually wrote that as a note. The, the, so, the yeah, people keep, keep misunderstood going. what I was trying to say, you know. Um, and it's also a good topic to explain what you what, what you were just talking about. See, in this modern culture where there's a, you know, people don't have the patience to sit through an entire match, and highlights have become very popular on YouTube, on on Instagram, on all the apps. People like to watch highlights and. What I was claiming in this video was um, that you're not going to learn the nuances of tennis um, by watching highlights. It's going to be pure entertainment. And of course, if you want to be entertained, then by all means, watch highlights. I'm not saying it is fun to watch a guy hit a crazy shot, a tweener. Or it's, it's fine. you know, No problem at all. But you're not going to learn the nuances of tennis. And I referred to an interview that I watched on the Functional Tennis Podcast with Ivan Ljubicic where he was asked, you know, what is the difference between you and the, the big, th like some of the Grand Slam champions? And he said that they played their best tennis when it matters the most. And for example, that you won't be able to pick up in highlights because like you, you have to watch the entire context of the match to understand what happened in the match. If you're interested, you can watch a match passively and not learn anything, no doubt about it. But you can learn a lot from seeing how the best players um, play in the most important stages, which doesn't necessarily mean that you can copy their technique. I'm not even talking about that. So the fact that Federer is going to play a certain way in an important stage of the match doesn't mean that you can play that same way and be successful. But um, I think it's very valuable for uh, especially juniors to watch full matches to learn more about the nuances of the game and how it's played correctly, something that you won't learn in highlights because what you're going to learn in highlights, what you're going to see, what goes viral in highlights, throwing rackets, uh, tweeners, uh, crazy low percentage winners. And of course, the young generation is going to copy that. They're not going to copy the high percentage play that Djokovic did when it was down 30, 40, 4, 5 in the third set. They're going to try to copy the stuff that they saw in the highlights. So that is was my point with the video that, um, you know, in this modern society, unfortunately, there is not enough patience to watch a whole match. And tennis is all about patience. You know, tennis is a game where you can't win a match in 10 minutes. You have to be patient and, yeah. and you have to also be patient with your development and the way you learn. It takes a lot of time to get better. So I don't think the current... Um, psyche of the world with a short attention span is going in the tennis's favor no i agree and i don't think any like, gimmick maybe like the uts or whatever is going to help at that point either because then that changes it too much i i i have hope that like people listen to long podcasts now like so that's at least you know some trend that it's positive the maybe it's an older generation that's so i mean not the data, exactly. i think that i'm sorry to cut you off but i think the difference no, the no, difference no. with the with the podcast is that you can listen to it passively. I think a lot of people uh, uh, consume a, a podcast passively. So they'll put on a pair of headphones and start cleaning the house. So they're listening to it in their car and you don't necessarily have to sit there and watch. So I think that's why a long form content like that podcast can do extremely well because it can be consumed in a few different ways. Whereas 
you know, things that you actually have to watch, that, if it's long form, is going to be tough. That's getting shorter yeah, and shorter I, and shorter. Yeah, I'm, I'm the same. Like, I used to read a lot of books. Like, now I, I feel like I don't have time to read books, which is wrong. Really, <laughs> because it's just about prioritizing time. Right. But it's like, uh, I even wrote two books, and that was like a huge time investment because you have to put in time every day. Uh, but it's, and that's just kind of generational. Like, the, the span is, is shorter. They may be faster with certain synapses and stuff. Right. But I also think you miss something in tennis if you shorten the format or if you're watching I don't watch highlights either generally like I I like watching even bad matches because I want to see the story so it's like this guy he was tired at the start he lost he got down loves three he couldn't find his first serve he looked really miserable then something happens right and you can only see this if you watch the match you can only see like then he just found his momentum something changed he changed his shirt he did something he talked to his coach nobody saw that and then suddenly he's back and it's 4-3. Then it's like even even up till tie break. And in the tie break, someone found like some extra gear or whatever. Or it was just one point that changed everything. And then you see like from the second set, then the guy who lost the tie break, how will he respond? Mm -hmm. And how will the guy who won the tie break? Because that is like when you lose a set, the, the start of the second is always that like, will you start, will you keep momentum or will you just give away momentum? It's like one of the key things in tennis. But you don't see that in highlights. This is exciting stuff for me. Like, I really like this. Like, oh, look at this guy. He cannot find, you know, this part part of his game today. So he has to go to plan B, C, D, E, F. You yeah, know? exactly. Like, tennis is not all about winners. Like, how interesting is it to see somebody playing well up 4-1 or something and then all of a sudden, like, collapse and, and lose the set? To me, that's super interesting. Or somebody has, yeah, yeah, all about when stuff, somebody's yeah. up, like, you know. Doesn't happen too often. Up five love ends up losing. Like you want to see what what happened. Like how do you end up losing this? Like you know, so that's was something you cannot see in highlights. And to me, that's one of the most entertaining things ever. When I know that something like that happened, I I will watch a match on replay and watch that part of the match. And to me, it's it's very entertaining to watch something like that. You know. Yep, it's the storyline of the match. Absolutely. So that that you see like. Classic matches, they are usually classics because they have an ebb and flow storyline. Mm -hmm. It's not like Federer just blasting, like he's on his best form, he wins 6-3-6 love against Murray, for example. Right. You know, which happened. And and that's amazing to watch Federer in full mode. Sure. And Murray playing, sure. you know. But it's more fun to watch a match that goes like first set, then tough, and then second set was this, third set was this, five, fourth set was this, then that's the entertainment, well, right? For it's example, the main like, entertainment, I think. To me, the two matches that were the craziest was McEnroe Lendl French Open final and Agassi Medvedev French Open final where it looked like yeah, yeah, no, I remember it looked that one, like yeah, the yeah. match was over if you when you were watching it and then all of a sudden something shifted and the match reversed completely reversed unbelievably exciting matches but you know which match to me um, was one of the most entertaining and one of the like you could barely stand watching it it was very hard to watch it was Gaudio against Coria do you remember that? Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> I, saw that one, yeah. I felt so bad. For, I felt so bad for Coria. He deserved that match so much. And it, just yeah, wasn't, yeah. No, it, it was it, it was rough to watch. It wasn't meant to be. But how entertaining was that? And it like it wasn't the as far as the level, it wasn't the greatest level of tennis, but it was still that's what tennis brings. It's like when you know the mental side of the game is exposed and visible to everybody watching. And the players on the court down there helpless. That is a really, really interesting thing to watch. 
Yeah, even like matches that are bad, like for example, Dominic Team, Alexander Zverev, U.S. Open final, COVID final. Absolutely. Tennis was so bad. Like these players can hit rockets, and and but they were so nervous. Yes. They knew that they was the best chance of winning a slam. Yes. Maybe their only chance potentially. Yes. They couldn't find any shots. Like they had nothing. So it's just all mental, right? It was all that about was finding. Very, very. Um, it, it was very entertaining to watch. You couldn't tell me yeah. that wasn't like, I mean, on other level of tennis wasn't nowhere near their best, but still it was very entertaining to watch. Yeah, because you know the stakes are so high. As well, for them, personally, it's such a high stake. Yeah, that, like, like, that poor play, you know. But yeah. just to go back on what we were talking about before, uh, the short attention span and that, you know, there's always talks about how they want to reduce the length of the matches. They, they have actually done a lot to reduce the length of matches. I mean, they don't play five sets anymore at the Masters. Doubles, third set is gone and the ATP tour and WTA tour it's still there in the Grand Slams but tennis has already started to reduce the length of the matches yeah but I can tell you a personal story when I was in college division one college has always experimented with with tennis scoring like they always experimented so they had like uh, when I played they started doing sets up to four and this is going back this is going back like almost 25 years ago and now if you look at junior tournaments here in Florida they do go and play in sets up to four. And what I can tell you is the following, that the shorter, and of course this is my opinion, um, the shorter you make a tennis match, the more luck is involved. So when you play a super tie break in a third versus a whole third set, luck is going to be a greater factor. Now I will add to this, that the greatest, if the discrepancy level is there, it's not going to matter. No matter what scoring format you have, the best players are always going to be the best players. And this was somewhat proven that it was a huge prize money tournament here in Southeast Florida many, many years ago um, with a good prize money. And it was all tie breaks. And it was a huge draw. And it was round-robin format. And the best player ended up winning. So I do think that the best players will prevail, but I do think that generally speaking, the shorter you make the format in tennis, the more luck gets involved. And that's something I don't like. I don't like. I think that's the case with everything. Like the, you, you take the least, it's like a statistical analysis. Like the shorter you make it, the more variance you have in the results. So yes. then it's not going to be true, right? It's like, true. I mean, I, I used to play professional chess, right? right? So, and in chess, you had like six hour games like six hour games like you sometimes seven hour games which then you really like okay get like full on display you will see but then you can play a five minute blitz game right and then there's more more variance the best player technically almost always wins like the same like tennis exactly. the levels the levels are so clear like i know in tennis for example if you play someone who is you know a 0.5 better than you ntrp for example we say that you know we play a 5.5 6.0 whatever uh, in the Euro 4.5 or you know 5.0 even you you see i mean unless you're you're delusional you know what's going to happen right like it it's so clear like you you people might lose six love six love to a guy who's 0.5 better i guess you've seen that like that's what i've seen at least you know and, and you know you can experience it well Absolutely. you play someone oh i used to play futures okay well and then it's tennis is such a like a honest game. <laughs> well, who crazy, wins? It's you know? crazy. I mean, if you look at the Winston Du, uh, who I know personally, he's from Rockford, Illinois. I used to live in Rockford. 
I used to work in Rockford actually at the same club where he grew up. Like he, his channel is great because he plays a lot of these like former pros, super high level players. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's always the same score. It's always yeah. it's always six uh, or eight zero or six zero six zero. And now he started doing like a handicap where they're they get thirty love in each game and they still win because this people get upset at me when I talk about this, but you know there's no. There's no bigger difference in tennis than the difference between the recreational level and the high level. And people get upset when I say this, but you cannot make up the tens of ten or twenty thousand of hours of not only training but competition and match play and the craftsmanship of a high level player and think that you can somehow bypass that as someone who started playing tennis as an adult. It's gonna be impossible. You know, so I, no, I, I, I know 100%. It. I've seen it in my own personal experience because I've worked at many clubs, you know, in Europe and in the United States. And there's never been a scenario where I've seen a rec player take out a high level player. What's a high level player? I'll give you a simple um, definition of one that I go by is someone who is capable of making money with tennis. If that person is able to get paid by a club in Germany or France to play matches, or is able to win matches in the qualities of futures. That's a high-level player. So, for example, that, that tennis brothers Felix, he's winning matches in the qualities. That's a high-level player. That's my definition. If you if you uh, are someone who's going to go to a futures and get blown out in the first round, or it's not quite good, but not quite good enough to get paid by a club to play, you're you're not necessarily a high-level player. You're in that. In that in-between zone. You're not necessarily rec level either, but you're in that in-between zone. So, like I said, there's there's no greater difference than the difference between between high level and rec level. No, and tennis is so harsh. So it's like the scoring system with that you have to win four points to win a game. Right. Will tell everything, right? right? So, so it's not like even like if he, I saw also saw the video he he got. I, I like that that channel as well. Like it's it's quite shows level differences. Right. As a guy who you know, got to tennis pretty, I mean, I started early, but got to it late. And I play with, I sometimes train with really high level players, right? right? But but just like fun. I know how bad I am, right? But a lot of people don't. And I, because I, I'm around tennis a lot. I've been around since I was younger. Right. I love tennis. And I know when a guy is very good, I can see it after one second, right? It's like, okay, this guy is he's, going to blow me off the court. I know that, you know? But a lot of people think that they're like Roger Federer, but they just woke up too late, right? So it's like, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's a weird thing, you know. People are delusional. I can see when you're in a club setting, people talk, and people like a, you know they're, they're like a little gossip queen. So I've there's this I can just remember just a story from a few months ago from this guy that I teach where this is a, a club where the pro the teaching pro is a former um, former like D one like for a good school, okay. And yeah. there's this guy that plays on a rec team who's like in his sixties who's good. He's one of the best rec players in the, in, the, in the place. And he's telling everybody how he thinks that he can beat the other guy, the D1 guy. He really thinks that. He's that delusional. So that's what happens. Some people are just simply delusional. They think they can... You know what the number one question that I get on social media is? Number one, by far. No is, um, is it too late for me to turn pro? Yeah, and uh, I've made several videos on this, and um, people just are delusional. They think that I mean I have so many stories that I can tell you. I mean I'm going to tell you one, and 
there's this guy who was training with me um, and then he actually moved to a different state and came back for a training session. He was in town. And this is so insane. I don't even know where to begin. He decided to um, play Futures. And he is like not even 5-0. He's like maybe 4-5. And he was playing, competing in juniors in Florida, not winning any matches. Then competing at that level, 4-5, uh, and losing. And unfortunately, he ran into a coach that told this player that this was possible to achieve, to become a pro. So his goal is not only to play futures, but his goal was to win challengers. So he thinks that Ooh. he can make it like top three, 300, top 200. He is um, not I young. I hope he's, he's rich. Like, no, not even. And uh, he's like maybe in his late 20s or something like that. So um, I... I told him in that lesson when he came back, I told him he didn't want to hear this. And I don't know if he listened to me, but I told him that um, this was absolutely ridiculous. That he needs to approach tennis in a goal setting in tennis in a step-by-step -step basis. He should be thinking about getting to 5-0 first. And that's going to be hard enough in itself because my guess would be that 1-5% to of recreational players worldwide are 5-0. The vast majority of of recreational players are are uh, below that level and so it's going to be hard enough to reach uh, 5-0 never mind going to future and winning matches like you remember 5-0 means that like some of these people like played in some of them played in college they're d2 d3 college players some of some are even d1 college players some of them played in juniors so you're going to be playing those guys you know it's going to be hard enough to make it to 5-0 so i try to explain to him that like you this is something that i always say you don't think about the next level until you dominate your level. So let me see you dominate four or five first. Let me see you go to a four or five tournament and win like three or four of those in a row. Let me see you play on a four or five team and be the number one player that's winning all the matches. Then we can talk about like starting to get to five zero. So that was my answer. I don't think that he listened to me though. <laughs> I think he's still no, pursuing. No, it hurts. The, the truth hurts, right? But, but this is just yeah, one I, I story of many. There's many yeah, stories I, know, I have I like this. Many. It's just some people are just unfortunately they're they're, they're delusional and that there's unfortunately also some uh, coaches who are not ethical and they will maybe I don't Take know the money, maybe right? they're delusional themselves the coaches or maybe they are just uh, you know unethical in a way where they would take their their money from the coaching and promise something that's unrealistic that I don't know but yeah I think that's that's the case sometimes like they get. Or, I mean, people generally, I think I found that sometimes with, like, successful business uh, owners, leaders, they are thinking, like, oh, I conquered, I, I made a lot of money. So, since I can make money and I used to play tennis, I can now be, like, awesome at tennis. But tennis is one of the harshest sports to become better at, right? So, you need to dedicate loads of time, money, uh, you know, effort to just, like you said, go one 0.5 level, right? So, from NTRP 4 to 5, 4.5, it's a very high a step to take you know and you, people do it and you applaud them but that requires a lot of work but i don't think they've been around the lower levels i think that's a problem maybe sometimes with tennis that people don't realize how many layers on the tennis cake there are like there's so many layers and the guys on the lowest level of futures that win one match in qualities like you say 
Uh, and I have friends that do this. I have friends that played 150 in the world. I know how good they are. I also know everything in between, right? So it's it's just so difficult. To, to Even if you have the most money in the world to just put like in training, in, in diets and everything. But it's just so difficult. Yeah. Like these guys can hit a, a rocket's ball, but it, it's not enough still to sustain a career, you know? So The first video of this year that I made was like explaining tennis levels and I made a pyramid. I don't know if you saw that video. It did pretty I well. I don't think I saw that one. I think it got like, I think it got 40,000 views or 30,000 views, something like that. And I spent like uh, a good month preparing for this video and really trying to present um, explanation of tennis levels that doesn't have anything to do with numbers. So just kind of explaining the different levels with words. And I came up with a pyramid that had many, many different levels there. And even within like what I call the high level, there was like four or five different levels even within that. And I tried to explain it the best I can. And I collected some data and I made some calculations on how actually how many players are of the caliber um, that I categorize as high level. And I compared that to the total amount of people that play tennis worldwide. And guess what the ratio was? It was like it, the chances of becoming that was is just like playing the lottery. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, like you, you can it's it's even if you see a guy that has top 200 potential that does not mean he's going to make a successful no. career playing tennis this is know? what i want people to understand i'm not talking about being on tv and playing on uh, in front of uh, you know in wimbledon yeah well, everybody knows that's like winning the lottery i'm talking about playing like division one college for a known school or doing well in the futures like that is going to be very difficult to achieve for the vast amount of people even for those who start playing tennis at a young age, there's no guarantee that they will reach that level. I mean, I've seen many who never go that far. No, no. No, and also from junior, like I I think sometimes the problem is like partly courteous, you said, but also some parents put the idea into their own head and their kids' heads that even though like, it's a harsh reality. You can see a kid, you'd be like, okay, he wants to go pro, he's 10. Yeah. Usually you can tell even like, it's not gonna be pro. Like I mean, sometimes they have a growth spurt. Sometimes things change, right. but generally you can see athletic ability and talent pretty early, right? So you you see, okay, it's very unlikely that this guy. You need to win like Orange Bowl. You need to be like really high up winning the junior tournaments to uh, to have a, well, a good, good chance of a good, doing it. Good account to follow is ITF Tennis on Instagram because they'll post pictures of uh, of pros when they were in juniors, and almost always the people that are winning. In the pros, they were winning in the juniors. Rybakina was winning all the big junior tournaments. Iga Sviantek was winning all the big junior tournaments. Same goes for the men. What are you talking about Rublev? What are you talking about all these other guys? Zverev. They were doing incredibly well in the juniors. They were dominating the juniors. And, of course, their chances of becoming one of the best players in the in the pros is, is, is much higher, you know? But yep. I just tell people, like, look, if you if you are, like playing here in florida and you're playing at the lowest junior level like you're playing what's called level seven they even have level eight now which is beginner but let's say you're playing level seven juniors and you're losing first round in the tournaments like you you have to there's nothing wrong with that and you should always have step-by-step goal setting approach but if you if your parents are telling you you're going to be playing wimbledon it's one of the biggest contributors to junior players quitting because 
if the junior is very young, they might be naive enough to believe that they might be in Wimbledon, but as soon as they are mature enough to understand that this will most likely never happen, they get very down on themselves. And because the goal that they have is so unattainable, so far away, they end up getting very disappointed, end up quitting as a result of it. There's a lot of these serious junior tennis players who end up quitting tennis as a result of improper goal setting, either by their parents, um, usually always by the parents. Um, and, and it's just something that's a big mistake, a big trap, you know? Like I said, step-by-step step is going to be the key. Now, when we're talking about someone who's... Uh, people always bring up this, this, this clip of Djokovic where he's talking about how he was dreaming about, you know, winning Wimbledon and stuff, and he was dreaming of becoming number one. Yes, of course he was, because why? He was one of the best juniors in the world. So naturally, what's the next step uh, when you're there? The next step is to replicate that on the Pro Tour. You know, that's the natural next step where somebody, like I said, that's losing level seven first round in the tournaments here. And he hears Djokovic saying, you know, uh, what is that saying? Aim for the moon, uh, shoot for the moon, you'll land among the stars. Um, I don't think so. You know, go step by step instead. That what Djokovic was saying made sense to him because he was destined to be number one. He was one of the greatest juniors to ever live. But this might not apply to you, you know. I agree 100%. And I think it's it's um, it's also much more digestible as a person to have. I mean, that's for everything in life. Like if you aim to be like a 1% better thing in anything you do, you know, every hobby you do, profession, you can't go and aim to like, oh, I'm going to be the max level, highest level. If you're at a pretty low level, like that's too much, right? So just take it step by step and see where it takes you. And I think in tennis, it's, it's good, like like you put it. I think that if you're not winning these junior events, if you're not winning the kids' events, and you're just not dominating, I mean, how are you gonna move up to the whole ladder? Like futures, challengers. Even if you're winning on challenger tour, does not mean that you're gonna be like dominating or be top fifty ATP. Even you know, it's like that's the, that's the problem. Well, like, right? so. I listened to an interview with Ricardo Piatti on the Functional Tennis Podcast, and he was saying that like it generally might take players five years to break through once they get on the, once they initially get on the tour until they break through and become, he calls a pro player, somebody that's in the top hundred. Um, it takes five years. So like, it's a lot of suffering. It's a lot of hard work to break through. Like the days of you coming onto the scene and blowing through, uh, yes, there might be some of the examples of that still out there today, but that's very unlikely to happen. It's just a, it's just a grind out there, you know, and most players, unfortunately, Somewhere along this path, they either give up or something happens and they end up quitting, you know? Yeah. I think if you give yourself reasonable expectations of what tennis will give you, yeah, I think you will enjoy tennis more and like any level, yeah. right? So if you have reasonable expectations and you play it because of the joy it gives you, not yeah. because of any like monetary, uh, you know, I understand if you're young, maybe you want to go to college, yeah. maybe tennis can be a, a, a pathway. It's a great pathway, but still like have normal expectations well, i think it what helps you, what you just said was something that's so important some people play tennis because of some kind of monetary goals that's like maybe the worst goal ever to have because tennis is nothing but spending money until the very very top i mean everybody knows this so like you have to love 
playing a match in front of nobody with absolutely no money on the line and and play the same way in that match as you play if you were playing for a thousand dollars or for a hundred thousand dollars that's a true test if you're playing tennis for money reasons that never works out listen i play tennis for money i was like uh what they call in germany like a prize money pirate i didn't play futures but i played like every weekend i played uh prize money tournaments and i played the uh, leagues and then when i first moved to florida i played prize money tournaments too for about 10 years so um anytime that it was in a final and there was like maybe a difference of a 1500 bucks or 2000 bucks and anytime that i obsessed on this i ended up losing you know that's a big trap in tennis thinking about you know the money when you're playing you, you got to play for the love of the game and put in the same emphasis on playing a match in front of nobody um, but there's no money on the line and playing, I guess, in the final of the Wimbledon. I don't know if this is true for the players at the high level. I have no idea of knowing this, but I have a feeling that when Djokovic is playing in the final of Wimbledon, that Federer and Nadal are playing in the final, the last thing on their mind is the difference in the prize money. That's just my opinion. Yeah. I could be wrong, but I think so. What do you think? Yeah, I think so. I think beating the other guy is their number one priority, exactly. whatever it takes. Exactly. Yeah. Nicola, I have to let you go because I have no a, a dinner date here. Of course. Of course. <laughs> We've been two hours already. Oh, perfect, man. That's great. It was fun talking to you. It was nice yeah. to meet you. No, it was great. I could be probably speaking for three more hours, but sure. we'll, we'll do it again. Then. Right, we'll do it another that time. seems to be the... For sure. We can do it some other time. No problem. Yeah, whenever you want, man. That was really nice. I, I hope to be able to meet you in person at some point as well. I hope so too. We'll go to, go to I go to Florida. I hope to do actually a US uh, thing. It would be nice to go to the like US Open or do something. Yeah, of course. Because I used to live in the States, but it was like I, I go every five years now. You and, know? It's uh, like, and you go for my Florida. uncle lives in Spain. My uncle oh, lives yeah? in Barcelona. So I definitely gonna go to Spain soon to next time I go to Europe. So yeah, definitely cool. uh, we'll keep in touch and hopefully get to meet one time. Yeah, it would be nice. It would be nice. Great. Have a nice day, man. Take care.